Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Well, good morning, Southbridge. Good to see you this morning. And uh, I'm just delighted to be here. I want to give a shout out to Pastor Scott, who's not here, but for the invitation for me to be here. And I just want to say to the leaders here how much I appreciate the fact that you all are sensitive enough to uh, have a sabbatical policy in your church and allow your pastor to be on sabbatical. I was a pastor for many years, and what a gift that is. By the way, it's a gift to the church because his refreshment and God speaking to his heart and the energy, uh, you really don't want a pastor that's up here who's bone tired. So uh, what, a, what, a, what a treat. Glad to be here. Um, I said yes to this because I was asked to come and I felt like I, I should be here. But also I got family here in Raleigh. I got my son and some grandchildren. The son business is okay. The grandkids is really the, the deal. <laughs> At that stage, you know, grown folks, never mind, I won't get into that. But uh, I missed my grandson's graduation this COVID season. He graduated on Thursday, and, you know, with this whole pandemic stuff and the, 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 the way they were doing school, they changed dates and what have you. So I had a commitment that I just could not get out of speaking. But I came last yesterday and took him out last night, and let's just say he made me make up for me not being at the deal. So, <laughs> no, it was really, really, really good. I bring you greetings from my wife, the joy of my life. Uh, we've been married 50 years. We celebrated our 50th anniversary in May, and she was just four when we got married, but uh, <laughs> well, actually, we were in college when we got married. We were not poor. We were poor. We couldn't afford the other OR. But, uh, <laughs> <so> <laughs> So she is just the joy of my life. Say, I want to get something out of the way here. Uh, anybody here sleepy? Now just tell the truth. Anybody sleepy? You sure? Okay, here's the deal. Uh, I can see far more than you think I can see, so if, you, if you're sleepy, please don't fight it. It's disgusting looking at people finding sleep. Don't fight it, just yield. <laughs> Give in to it. I've slept on the best of them, so what goes around comes around, and it might be my turn, so just, just help yourself. But don't do one of these two things, okay? Don't do like this. That's distracting. And uh, the other one is that please, by all means, don't do this. Don't, don't, don't do this, pretending as if you're reading or praying. Um, that's character problem right there. You know, you're lying. So. <laughs> Just go ahead and sleep. And by the way, if, the, if someone sleeps next to you, don't do like that. That is a real service disruptor. Uh, just let them go ahead and sleep and don't fuss at them, that, that sort of thing. Well, I have a long ways to go and a short time to get there, so I want to get down to business. But let me just share with you, um, you know, preaching and speaking in these contexts, uh, to me, preaching is not speech making. It's not a matter of just, oh, well, just choosing something that you can say or something that you've done before. Um, to me, preaching is a word from God for the people of the moment in history, and so you cannot separate the dynamics of prayer and reliance on the Spirit of God for His direction in terms of what to say. And so when I uh, said yes to this, as I do with uh, so many of the other speaking opportunities I have, I pray about, God, what do you want me to say? And on my heart today, I want to talk about the whole issue of discouragement or how not to be branded by discouragement. 
And I've entitled the message, A Wind in My Sails. But before we do, I know we've prayed, but let's pray one more time. Holy Father, thank you for yourself and thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your relentless grace. Oh God, you have been extraordinarily, enormously, wonderfully good to us. Forgive us for our entitlement, Lord. And God, we ask of you that you'll speak to us. I pray especially for that person today whose shoulders are slumped and it was a hard time for them to come and maybe life has beaten them up and uh, they're in the throes of having uh, the wind knocked out of them. Father, I pray that your spirit will come alongside and put his finger under their chins and lift their heads toward heaven and put joy in their hearts. God, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most stupid qualities of human beings is this whole thing called pride. When you stop to think about it, pride and arrogance is so ludicrously ridiculous. It's idiotic when you think about it. And the reason for that is that we control categorically absolutely nothing. Even those of us who have high control sides of our personalities. All of us are just one text message away, one phone call away, one email away from our world unraveling. And we, we, we are not divine. Uh, we do not sit in control of the sequences and the substance of our lives, and although we act like that. We, we are so terribly, tragically vulnerable. In fact, all of humanity was created to be dependent. There's no such thing, technically speaking, of an independent person. We are all dependent. At any moment, God can say, give me back my breath. Uh, we, we, we are dependent people. And so every once in a while, I think for those, of, particularly those of us who are followers of Jesus, God has to remind us who's really in charge and how vulnerable we really are. One old sage said it this way, we often turn to God when our foundations are shaking only to discover it's God who's shaking them. We are needy, needy people. So the, 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 what I'm trying to say is the deal is this. <laughs> uh, it's ridiculous to say that you're going to live life without having been, been discouraged. That's a, that's, that, 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 that statement doesn't make any sense. All of us are going to have the wind knocked out of us. All of us, every last one of us, we're, we're going to be discouraged. If you're breathing, you're going to be discouraged. Now, before I get started here, let me, let me you know, get into the meat of what I want to say. Let me distinguish between three words that sometimes we use interchangeably, but they are significantly different. Uh, uh, disappointment, um, discouragement, and depression. There are three different words. Uh, the first word, disappointment, uh, uh, that doesn't, you, you can be disappointed and not be discouraged. Disappointment just simply means an expectation hadn't been met. We get disappointed every day. There are all of us, they didn't, somebody didn't return the phone call, or they didn't do this, they didn't show up for the meeting, they didn't follow through on this. I, I didn't measure up to what I said I was going to do. I disappointed myself. It just means that an expectation has not been met. It, it doesn't mean that you're in the fetal position. Uh, it just means that an expectation hadn't been met. 
Uh, let me slip over discouragement and, and the word uh, depression. Now, this one is a little bit above my pay grade. I don't, I don't have any degrees in clinical psychology or this kind of thing. But uh, the signature of depression is when one is beneath the hope line. Uh, it's, it's, it's different and deeper than discouragement. You're thrust beneath the hope line. Um, there are two kinds of depression, and, and I won't say much more than this. I'll get into trouble, but there's two kinds of depression. There's circumstantial depression, clinical depression, but what they both have in common is that there's the loss of hope. You're angry at yourself. And there's this downward spiral of what if, what if, or why didn't, 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 how come, how come, how come, how come. And I would just say this parenthetically, if, if you're struggling with depression, you're going to have to do what you don't want to do. And the first step is you've got to get help. You've got to get help. You've got to invite someone in to help give you perspective and do whatever it takes to get you above that threshold. Now, let me go over to discouragement. Discouragement is what the word says. I mean, it's the loss of courage. It's different from depression, but it's not quite—yes, it's different from depression. It's different from disappointment. It means that the wind has been knocked out of you. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you've necessarily been paralyzed or stopped, but I would put it this way. It's, it's kind of like if the word picture is that you, you, you're moving forward, but you're dragging an anchor. The governor's on you right now because it's a gut punch. It's, it's, it's a deep, deep disappointment. And maybe it's a series of disappointments that's just, just taking your energy from you. But the question is this, how do you not be branded by discouragement? We've all met people that way. We've all met people who, uh, because of a series of disappointments and maybe the wind's been knocked out of them, there's this sort of like permanent cloud over them. They, they're afraid to trust. They're, they're afraid to believe anymore. They, 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 they see the south side of everything. They're, 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 they're negative. And it's really they're negative because they're self-protective. They don't want to go through that again. But that's a horrible way to live. It's a terrible way to live. How do I not be that person? How do I not be branded by discouragement? And I'm going to say something, something here today that is counterintuitive, and it's against everything that our culture tells us. Part of the problem in our cultural moment today is that uh, we think with our feelings. And so what I'm going to say is going to collide with the cultural milieu. It is the choices, now hear me on this, hear me, hear me on this, okay? It is the choices and decisions that we make when we're discouraged that will determine whether or not we'll be branded by that discouragement. You say, whoa, 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 isn't it an emotional reaction? I mean, it's beyond my, uh, yes and no. You see, in the Bible, now, the emotions are, I'm not, I'm not saying emotions are, are, are not important. They are terribly important. But in the Bible, in the Bible, uh, the mind and the will are meant to give context to our emotional response. Did you hear what I just said? The mind and the will are meant to give context to our emotional response. We're not ruled by our feelings, although feelings are, are important. 
The mind and the will directs that. So it's the decisions and choices that we make that will determine whether or not we're going to be branded by, by, by discouragement. When we're born, we look like our parents. When we die, we look like our choices. That's the truth. The trajectory in your life is based upon your responses to the issue in life, the issues in life. So having said that, what do you do when discouragement comes knocking on your door? And we will be discouraged. What do you do when the wind is knocked out of you? What do you do when you get that gut punch? I want to suggest to you that there are five critical choices that we need to make. Now, I always say this. Now, listen to me on this. Now, as preachers, we got to be very careful. And I tell younger preachers this all the time. Be very careful that, you know, your five insights don't represent the 67th book of the Bible, okay? Um, you know, I'm, I'm listing five here, but there might be ten other things that you might need to do. But I would say that these are five lowest common denominator things, and these are five things that I've come to in over all these years of ministry and getting the wind knocked out of me and getting gut punched and all of this stuff. I've had to come to grips with how do I navigate? How do I not allow the circumstances of my life to redefine my demeanor? And here are five choices. So when discouragement comes knocking on your door, trespassing your domain, messing up your day, you didn't expect this to happen. You go, oh boy, oh boy. What do you do? The very, the very first decision choice that you have to make is that, number one, you choose truth. You choose truth. Now, I, I mean this in two ways. Uh, one, you know, you, you choose truth about the situation. I have found, I have found, I have found that typically if I emotionally react to something, it is probably 90% of the time going to be wrong. I got to wait until I can respond, not react. And what, what, what I mean by that is that I have to choose the truth about the situation. So usually I need to stand back, step back a little bit, and let the emotion of the moment die down some, get a good night's rest, and then say, okay, what are the facts related to this? I didn't say, Crawford, how you feel about this and how you feel about that person. or how, What are the facts? So I mean that. But, but secondly, we need to choose the truth of God's Word. We have to go vertical. Now, I'm going to say something here. Uh, as a pastor, one of the most frustrating things for me is that all these folks that would attend our church, these thousands of people that be there, all these guys, and, and have been believers for years and have been in Bible studies and done, done a BSF and precept and all the other stuff and, and all of this kind of thing, um, still many had the tendency to view the Scriptures as a point of reference and not the context of their lives. Did you hear what I said? That's a very important distinction. Too many Christians view the Bible as a point of reference and not as a context of their lives. You have to decide that this book is my life. It is the framework by and through which I view everything, including my feelings. So when I say you choose truth, I mean you choose truth as your identity. 
You choose what God said as your identity. It's not on the level of your buddies, and it's not on the level of their counselors. It's not on the level of your friends. It's not on the level of these other insights. It's not just a priori. It is meant to be my identity. And so that's why David says what in Psalm 119, verse 50, he says, this is my comfort and my affliction that your promise gives me life. Gives me life. But he also, you also choose it as your delight. He said, how do you do that? You can choose it as your delight. I choose my wife as my delight. She chooses me as her delight. It's a decision to live by our vows. Psalm 1. Psalm 1 begins with decision and choice. Most, many scholars believe that Psalm 1 is really, is like the preface to a book. It really is the preface to this anthology of worship, the Psalms. And all the other Psalms are just an exposition of Psalm 1. But have you noticed how Psalm 1 begins? It begins with choice. It begins with decision. It begins by saying, blessed is the man who does not, who does not, who does not, who does not. But what does he do? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. That Hebrew word uh, for meditate literally means dull sound, implies context. He absorbs it. And so what we need to do, the very first thing we need to do is, is something that's counterintuitive to all of us. When I'm rattled emotionally and the wind has been knocked out of me, I have to choose to go vertical. I have to choose truth. It's not my perception of what's taking place. It is what God says about how I should respond to what's taking place that makes all the difference in the world. So you choose truth. So what do you do when this comes knocking on your door and the apple cart is upset and you had all these plans and you were going this way and man, it was looking exciting and wonderful and had all this joy and all of a sudden, bam, gut punch. Well, first you choose truth. Now the second one, you're gonna think I lost my ever-loving mind, which joined the long line of people who feel that way about me. The, the second one, Let me just say, say it, you, you choose truth, but number two, you choose, hear me on this, you choose joy. You go, oh, oh, come on, Crawford. Seriously, how can you choose joy? That's an involuntary response. It's an emotion. I mean, how, you, it, you either have it or not. I mean, it, it, it's tied to my circumstances, and, you choose, and that's the problem. That's the problem. That's the problem right there. That is the problem right there. Joy is not tied to your circumstances. Joy is tied to outcome. Joy is tied to who controls all the events in life. And notice, joy in the Bible is a command. Have you ever noticed how many times God commands emotions? Is that counterintuitive or what? Have you ever noticed how many times in the Bible he commands emotions? And joy is commanded. Where do you get that from? Well, Philippians chapter 4, verse, verse 4 says, listen to Paul. He says, hear me, this is in the imperative mood. This is a command. 
He doesn't preface it by saying, if you feel happy and if these circumstances are there. No, he comes and says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. <laughs> Paul says, this, I'm, I'm telling you to rejoice. Well, you know my circumstances. I don't care. Rejoice. And sensing that they might think he lost his mind, he said, no, this is not a typo. Rejoice in the Lord. And, and again, I say rejoice. Now, you know where he wrote this? You know where he wrote this? He was in jail. It wasn't going to end well for him. If anybody could be in a fetal position and upset, it's Paul. And yet he tells them, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. I just can't help but think that Paul, what Paul was thinking about is how this church at Philippi got started. Rewind button, back over to Acts 16, 25. Uh, uh, Paul and Silas go to Macedonia. The church there gets started in Philippi. And just think about it. I mean, he, you know, they're, they're there and maybe saw, uh, uh, Silas thought, man, hey, man, this is going to be really great. We're going on this little short-term missions trip here. And, and uh, you know, I understand he's got some nice restaurants over there. And, and we'll check out the foodie stuff. And we'll, you know, we'll take some good, you know, do a tour a little bit. And, and, and then, we'll, you know, we'll pass out some tracts and you know, gospel literature in the Agora. And uh, say a little bit about Jesus and write back to our people who supported us to make sure they don't think we're wasting our time. So, but what happens? Those dudes are sharing the gospel, and they get arrested. Now, whenever you read your Bible, read it in its emotional context. Sometimes we're too familiar with these stories, but it says that they were beaten and arrested. They were beaten. I don't think they were shoved around. We're, we're, we're talking about contusions. Maybe broken nose. And they're thrown into this jail. Now, if I'm silent, I'm looking at Paul and saying, hey, hey, man, I didn't sign up for this. You know, hold up, Paul. You didn't tell me about all these crazy people, man. What, what's, what's, what are they doing? What are they doing? They're over in the corner singing and praying. This is extraordinary. Here's the point. Joy is always, hear me, listen to me, joy is always attached and tied to that which cannot be affected. Always in the Bible, joy is anchored to that which cannot be affected. That's the reason why Paul, I mean, Paul, this, is a typical, this is a typical Pauline uh, uh, signature in the last chapter of, uh, of the last paragraph of Romans chapter 8. He's, he comes to this grand crescendo, who and what shall separate us from the love of God? And whenever we, we refuse to choose joy, it means that we're empowering our circumstances and we commit idolatry because the circumstances determine our demeanor. And so the tears can be coming down your cheeks and you not like it. And yet, strangely enough, you don't despair. Why? Because you know who sits on the throne. 
You know that your eternal salvation cannot be affected. That heaven is your home. And that's what you have. So joy is a command, but joy is also a determination. For the sake of time, I can't press into this one too much, but sometimes read that last little paragraph of Habakkuk chapter 3. Uh, the wonderful story there in Habakkuk uh, is, is, is wonderful. It's, it's really a paradox there. Uh, Habakkuk is kind of like debating with God, which on his face is stupid. I mean, come on, man. You think you're really going to win? Seriously? So he's debating with God about judgment, trying to negotiate with him in the pending judgment. And finally, he cries, uncle. And he shouts out, though everything is taken away, there's no cattle in the stable. It's all gone. He says, yet I will rejoice. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. So when are you going to stop pouting? When are you going to stop making yourself miserable? When are you going to stop making the people around you miserable? When are you going to stop granting sovereignty to circumstances? I have to say that to myself. So when discouragement comes and knocks the wind out of us and craters us, then we all are there. What decisions do I need to make in order to get out of this? I don't want to be branded by it. First choice I need to make is I got to choose truth. Second choice I need to make is I got to choose joy. The third choice I have to make is I got to choose faith. I got to choose faith. By the way, by the way, faith has no meaning apart from opposition and difficulty. No, it, has, it has no meaning. It has no meaning. Faith has no meaning apart from opposition and difficulty. What gives meaning to faith is the ability to believe in storms. That's what gives meaning to faith. And by the way, that's what Hebrews chapter 11 is all about. All those snapshots of great men and women who continue to believe God. They didn't believe God in controlled environments where everything was fine and they were insulated from the tragic twists and turns in life. No, it was the tragic twists and turns in life where faith rose up. That's the reason why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Uh, some years ago, I wrote a book on faith, and uh, um, uh, it was actually based on a series of messages I gave at our church. And you know, you know, one of the things I discovered is that the Bible does not necessarily define faith. It describes it, and it said, that's what Hebrews 11, 1 is a description of it. And so, but as I, I put together the bits and pieces, I came up with a little Crawford definition here, and I really believe that faith in the Bible is God confidence in all things. Now, let me just say this to you. Faith in the Bible is not denial. 
Uh, I usually don't, from a pulpit or platform, uh, criticize other folks in this kind of thing. I don't, that's not my style. However, now I'll, I'll make a little bit of an exception here. Be very careful to some of the people you listen to on TV and radio and these stuff who are telling you to name and claim things and this kind of thing. First of all, first of all you're not going to manipulate God. And uh, we are not, we are not, we don't tell God what to do. Faith is not a, a means of ordering God around. But faith is not denial. Some of these guys preach faith as if it's denial. I say, don't, don't claim that you're sick. I don't care if you don't claim it or not. You got a fever at 105 degrees and just puked all over the place right here. Uh, you know, what was that, the dog sick or what? No, you're sick. No, no don't claim you, you don't have any money. Let's see, you can't pay rent, you can't buy gas, you can't buy food. No, faith in the Bible never, ever, ever, ever denies the existence of difficulty and hard things, ever. You'll never read in the Bible where it denies it. It defies it. It sees right through it. Yes, this exists, but it sees God is greater than. It doesn't deny it, but it defies it. It does not make the circumstances determinative. It makes God determinative. But also faith in the Bible is not only defiance, faith in the Bible is desperation. Now here's a bit of confliction or paradox or however you want to put it. <laughs> Uh, uh, there are certain biblical terms that are really confusing to the culture. Uh, desperation is one of them. Uh, the Bible teaches healthy desperation, but it's not the same thing as despair. Despair is hopelessness. Biblical desperation means being driven to the source of hope. No, we don't, we don't despair, but there ought to be some desperation about us. Uh, the great, one of the great biblical illustrations of this uh, is the, the woman with an issue, an issue of blood over in um, Luke chapter 8, uh, was it verses 42 through 48? Um, uh, this, where it takes place is an interesting time in the, his, in, in, uh, you know, in, the, in the life of our Lord. Most scholars believe that this, this occurrence takes place in the first year and a half, maybe two years of our Lord's earthly ministry. The importance of that is that great crowds are still going with him. There are these groupies out there, hip, hip, hooray, Jesus. Jesus riding the crest wave of popularity. The rejection is not necessarily taking place, at least in the masses. And so you got all these issues going on, and there's crowd control. And so Jesus is moving with his disciples, and he's moving through hundreds, if not thousands of people. Well, there's this woman who hears that Jesus is coming by. And the back story is that this lady had, had spent everything she had. And I don't go into the details, there's some kids in here, but she had this hemorrhage for 12 years. She was desperate. And the context tends to imply that she was probably Jewish. Well, what's important about that? Well, according to the Levitical Code, she could not come in contact or be touched or touch anyone. This is the reason why probably she said, if I can just touch the fringe of his garment. 
And so she's slinking around in the crowd trying to make her way through. Inconspicuous. I don't know if she had a hood over herself, but inconspicuous. Now, mind you, the disciples are doing crowd control. People are bumping up against Jesus and bumping up against them and trying to get through. And all of a sudden, the woman touches the hemline of his garment. And Jesus stops. He says, who touched me? Now, I have a demented sense of humor. Um, but Peter probably goes, um, I don't mean any harm, but there's been a lot of people kind of like bumping up against all of us all afternoon here. <laughs> and uh, by the way, when he raised the question, who touched me? It's not like Jesus needed information. Jesus raised that question to recognize this woman. So Jesus responds to Peter in so many words. No, 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 nobody. <laughs> they handled me, but somebody touched me. Desperation draws the attention of our great God. Sometimes God allows the wind to be knocked out of us because we're too self-sufficient. Faith to us is just one of many other options we have. I got money, I got contacts, you know, I've got education, got insights. And every once in a while, God has to strip all of that away. He says, how hungry are you, Crawford, for me? You, you, you're trusting a lot of stuff. You're going to your contact list, and you're, you're just like, okay, I'm going to shut all of that down. How desperate are you? So, when discouragement knocks on our door, trespasses our domain, what decisions do I need to make? What choices? I have to choose truth. I have to choose joy. I've got to choose faith. But this fourth one is, is, all of them are very important. Number four, I have to choose. I have to choose community. I have to choose community. When, when God, when Jesus Christ came into our hearts and lives, when he saved us and delivered us, he placed us into the body of Christ. There's no such thing as an independent Christian. None. And Christians who are not connected to dynamic community will have a dysfunctional Christian life. We have been called to community. In fact, I would go so far in the New Testament, there's not meaningful, authentic sanctification apart from community. The late Chuck Colson used to put it this way, if you have God as your father, you have to have the church as your mother. We're in dynamic relationship, and community in two ways. Community in the Bible, in the New Testament, if you do a study of all the one another's in the New Testament, you, you find that they, they, they break themselves into these two broad categories. The one another's break into these two broad categories, uh, and that, that is one, companionship, and then two, identification. 
We were born for companionship and identification. Paul would say it this way in Galatians chapter 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, I'm going to overshare here a little bit. I don't, you know, uh, most people are surprised when I make this confession or I say this about myself. I love people, okay? I really do. I, I love people. I'm in, in crowds of people all the time. I speak to large crowds. Our church was pretty sizable. I, I, I love people. But most people, when I say this, they say, you got to be kidding me. I, I really am an introvert that loves people, meaning I, I, I love being around people, but I don't necessarily get my energy from being around people. Well, I travel and speak and this kind of thing. I don't need to have the key to the city. You don't need to hold my hand. You don't need to take me a bunch of places, this kind of thing. Just put me in a hotel that ain't got too many bugs crawling, crawling all over the place. And, you know, I'm, I'm a good, good book. And this guy, I'm cool. I'm really cool. Now, for those of you who are like me, who are introverts, we have to be very careful when we go through discouragement. We have to be very careful. Very, very careful. It's good to pull back. It's good to be isolated for a while, for a while. But you see, isolation eventually will breed distortion. It breeds distortion. And people who keep to their own counsel usually lose perspective. We need one another. We need, we need to humble ourselves. We need to humble ourselves to get to community. You know one of the most frustrating things about pastoring to me all those years? You know what? You know what? Um, churches who have a demographic of people being middle class and above struggle with image management. We, 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 we have a hard time admitting need. And so what ends up taking place is that you're hurting, right? You, you, you're hurting. There's stuff going on in your marriage. Your kid, have, your kid maybe one of your children has, has made some, you know, bad choices and decisions and things are wrong, but, but you feel like you've got to project this image, right? So finally, when, 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 when you reach out for help, the stuff is glowing in the dark. Why? Why? I just wanted people to think that I was the fourth member of the Trinity. That's why. <laughs> we need one another. Romans 12 tells us we are to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Let people weep with you. Let them do that. Because I need it and you need it. Let them rejoice with you. We need one another. Choose community. That's counterintuitive. When you're hurting, don't run to the room and lock the door. You might do that overnight. You might need to get away for a weekend. I get that. 
but run toward your family. The fifth and the final one is this. What do you do? When discouragement trespasses your domain, knocks on your door, you choose truth, you choose joy, you choose faith, you choose community. But I'm going to surprise you by this last one. You choose service. You choose service. Let me explain here. Um, Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me back to Psalm 126. There are times and seasons in our lives, and I hope this doesn't sound like I'm kind of like dismantling what I just said a few moments ago. I'm, I'm really not. But there are those times and seasons in our lives where it's inappropriate to share what we're going through. Just the nature of it. And you're in a stretch where it's not wise. It's not a pride thing. You're not trying to hold anything back, but it's just not, it's just not a wise thing to do. And it comes at a time in your life where you can't quit. You can't pull back. You can't, you can't get away. What do you do? Well, you continue to serve. You continue to serve. You, you, you just have to do it. There was a stretch in um, some years back, um, I won't go into details about this, but something, our, our oldest daughter went through a very painful, painful, painful experience, and it wasn't her fault, and she was it, just a painful experience. Because of when it took place and some dynamics around it, it was inappropriate for me and Karen to, to share this at the time. I mean, we share now, but, but at the time, it was just inappropriate. It's just some other factors. It wasn't a pride piece or anything like that. And I can remember, uh, it was one of those situations, I'm a dad, and I couldn't fix it. And I would pull up to church, that early services, several Sundays during that stretch. I'd be sitting in the car before I walked into the church, and I had to preach, and I didn't feel like preaching. Tears would be streaming down my cheeks. But what do you do? What do you do? You say, Holy Ghost, fill me one more time. You put one step in front of the other. And I think this is what the psalmist is alluding to in Psalm 126, verses 4 through 6. He says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord like streams in the Negev. If you've ever been to Israel, the southern part is arid. Great word picture. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. If I might just say here, I think he's painting the picture that there are those seasons and times in your life where you've been through difficulties, but you've got to keep sowing. You got to keep sowing. And while you're sowing, you don't want to do it. You're in pain. The tears are dripping down your cheeks onto the soil. But those tears become holy fertilizer. And God is carrying you even in the midst of your pain. So I want to say to somebody here that might be in that situation don't quit, keep moving. Take one step at a time, and God will give you a bumper crop. Well, 
as we begin. When you're born, you look like your parents. When you die, you look like your choices. What are we choosing to become? And who are we choosing to look like? Father, thank you again for yourself. And thank you for um, the fact that you are always with us. Thank you for the empowering, liberating truth of the Word of God. Where would we be without your voice? So, Lord God, I pray in the name of your Son that you'll encourage all of us. Put fresh wind in our sails, O God. Lift our shoulders. Father, help us to navigate through these seasons of challenge. And and God, uh, help us to keep our eyes on you and to trust you to pull us through. We love you, Lord, and thank you that you're with us in Jesus' name. Amen.